got your Bible out, it's going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, and verse 9 is going to be the sermon text for today. Just one verse, Matthew 6, verse 9, but I'm going to read from Matthew 6, verse 9, down to verse 13, so we can kind of see the whole Lord's Prayer out in front of us. But the text itself will just be Matthew 6, verse 9. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9, please hear this public reading of God's Word. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray briefly together. Dear Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to come and to gather with your people and to sing and to open up your word. And what a privilege today we get to look at the opening to a familiar passage, the Lord's Prayer. But Father, I I pray that we would see some of the great depth behind this one single verse, because there is great depth here, and I pray we would be able to see some of it. And I pray that we would be able to apply some of the principles that Jesus teaches us in this prayer, that we'd be able to apply them to our lives, and that our prayer lives really would be changed as a result of today, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So just a few brief introductory comments before we get into the text itself. Uh, We're coming to uh, the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, as it's often been called, and it is a very familiar passage. I think J.C. Ryle talked about how there'd be many, even non-Christians, who would be familiar with this. They may have never even seen a Bible, but they would know, or at least heard of, the Lord's Prayer. So it's a familiar passage. Uh, The prayer is very concise. You can read it quickly. I think you can read it in probably 30 seconds or less, but don't let that fool you. Even though it is brief, there is incredible depth behind these words. And I'd also would say that these brief words are of immense importance to us. But the the question would be, why? How how so? Why are they important? How how are they so important to us? Well, let me give you two statements. I think you would agree as we think about prayer. Uh, Number one, prayer is absolutely indispensable for the Christian. And you can't live without prayer. It's sort of like breathing for human beings is prayer for the Christian. So, so number one, I think we would agree with that. Prayer is absolutely indispensable for the Christian. However, on the other hand, I think we would agree with this as well. One of the hardest things to establish in our Christian lives is a meaningful prayer life. I think we would agree with that. One of the hardest things to establish is a meaningful prayer life, and yet prayer is indis- indispensable to us. I mean, we've we got to have prayer. And so in light of those two things, this passage is of immense importance because this passage can teach us, help us to establish a meaningful prayer life. Another thing I would say in terms of introduction, have you ever thought about how amazing it is that we have this prayer recorded for us in the Bible? I mean, how amazing that we have this prayer. Jesus could have shown up on the scene. Jesus could have simply said, you guys need to pray, so pray. He could have just left it like that, but he didn't. He's given us this wonderful prayer that we can follow, so we should be deeply grateful to God that he has given us this wonderful prayer. Now, in terms of big picture, how can we think about this prayer? I don't want to steal too much of Mark's thunder in the future, so I'll just say just a a little bit about this in terms of big picture. How should we think about the Lord's Prayer big picture? Should we simply repeat this prayer word for word, sort of every time we pray it? Is that the way we should use the Lord's Prayer, just repeat it word for word? Well, I would say there's nothing wrong with that. I grew up in a church where we said the Lord's Prayer pretty much every Sunday. We said it corporately together. It's powerful to, to say the Lord's Prayer together with the people of God. Of course, you don't want to say it thoughtlessly, but it is, can be a powerful thing to do that. However, having said that, I don't think that's the primary purpose of this prayer is not so that we would just repeat it word for word. So what is the the primary purpose of the prayer? Well, pretty much everybody across the board said the Lord's Prayer should be used as a guide, as a pattern to help us to pray. We should use it as a guide, even maybe think of it as an outline to help us pray. 
The Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it like this, the whole Word of God, so the whole Bible is of use to direct us in prayer. Isn't that wonderful? We can use the entire Bible. Wherever we're reading that day in our reading, we can take that passage, we can turn it back to God in prayer. That's, that's wonderful, and I hope we're doing that, praying the Bible, Don Whitney's little book. I hope we're doing that. But the, the catechism continues. But the special rule of direction is that form of prayer which Christ taught his disciples commonly called the Lord's Prayer. So we can use this as a guide, as a pattern to help us pray, and hopefully this will help us to establish a meaningful prayer life. Okay, introduction out of the way. Let me give you the four uh, basic points of emphasis that we'll cover today. And I'm basically just drawing words from our brief passage as, the, as these points of emphasis. Number one, we're going to look at the word Father, our Father. We're going to think about the word Father first. Number two, we'll think about the two little words in heaven, in heaven. So Father in heaven. Number three, we'll come back to the first word there of the opening of the prayer, our. We'll think about that one word, our, third. And then number four, we'll get to the foundation, foundational petition itself, hallowed be your name. So number one, Father, number two, in heaven, number three, our, and then number four, hallowed be your name. So number one, Father, as we think about this word, Father, what can we draw from this word, Father? Let me just read the verse again. I may read it multiple times. There's only one verse, Jesus speaking, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So this word, Father, some people will say that God is the Father of all people, indiscriminately. Some people will say that. Well, the question would be then, is God the father of all people indiscriminately? One pastor said when he hears people claim the universal fatherhood of God, he wants to respond by saying, well, yes and no. Yes and no. The yes side would be everyone is indeed a child of God in the sense that we are all creatures made in the image of God. We are, quote unquote, God's offspring, as Paul declared on Mars Hill. That's the yes part. However, here's the no part. However, Not everyone is a child of God spiritually. Not everyone is born again by the Spirit of God. Not everyone is adopted into God's family. So therefore, we can conclude that God is not the father of all indiscriminately. He's not the father of all indiscriminately. So then we can draw from that then for someone to be able to pray this prayer genuinely, truly, to pray our father, this is not a human right given to everyone. No, it is a spiritual privilege given only to the people of God who've been born again by the Spirit of God. Only those who have been adopted into God's family can pray this way. So the first thing we see, thinking about the word Father, this is a spiritual privilege for the people of God to pray this way. So let's think a little bit more about this privilege. R.C. Sproul said, we tend to take this title for granted, our Father. We are so used to it. And I think R.C. Sproul is nailing it right on the head there. We take this title for granted. I know I'm guilty of this as well. We're just so used to praying to God by saying, Heavenly Father, our Father. We can just so easily take this title for granted. And yet, it is nearly an unbelievable privilege for us as sinners to come before God and say, Our Father. It's nearly an unbelievable privilege. And different people talked about this, but they, they talked about the Old Testament. They said on rare occasions in the Old Testament, the Old Testament will will refer to God rarely as Father in the Old Testament. And when God is referred to as Father, uh, it's commonly by way of analogy, not direct address. For example, here's one example, Psalm 103, verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. That's that's by way of analogy there. And here's, here's the thing, you can search the entire Old Testament. You will not find a single individual approaching God in prayer and saying, Our Father. It's not there. You can search the entire Old Testament. You will not find a single prophet who told the people, this is the way you need to pray, our Father. It's not there. So then Jesus shows up on the scene, and Jesus begins to pray. And how does Jesus pray? Almost every time he prayed, he prayed, Father, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prays, Abba, Father, in Mark's Gospel. The only exception was on the cross where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But every other occasion when he addresses God, he he says, Father, or Abba, Father. 
So it's, it's incredible. It would have been shocking, uh, I think, to people to hear Jesus pray in this way. Some 60 times in the Gospels, I think they said that Jesus approaches God and says, Father, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Abba, Father. D.A. Carson said there is no evidence of anyone before Jesus using this term to address God. No evidence of, of anyone addressing God like this in terms of Father or Abba, Father. No one before Jesus. And then Jesus shows up, and that's all he does, is it, except on the cross, he addresses God as Father or Abba, Father. This is remarkable. This would have been, people would have been shocked, been, been disturbed by this, I think. Maybe been angry. This is a remarkable thing. But what is even more remarkable is that he has made it possible for us to pray in the same way. And I, I picture these disciples listening to Jesus here on the Sermon on the Mount. And I think in verse 6, look at Matthew 6, verse 6, when they heard Jesus say this, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. I think already they're already like, wait a minute, when we pray, we're praying to God, we're praying to our father. I think they already would have been stunned. But then we get down to our text, pray then like this. And I, I picture them really wanting to listen to see what is Jesus going to say? How are we supposed to pray when we pray? How are we to address God? Our Father in heaven. You, you can picture these guys practically falling over. One pastor said you could have heard a pin drop. They would have been so stunned by this. But such are the privileges of the gospel that we can come into his presence and say, Our Father. So it's an incredible privilege for the people of God to pray this way. How can we pray this way? Well, it's only by our adoption. It's only by our adoption. One commentator put it powerfully like this. He said, We were once children of darkness. We're now children of light. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We are now alive in Christ. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but now we are children of love and faith and obedience. And these and these only can approach God as their father. Again, Sproul just said, every time we address God as father, we should be reminded of our adoption. We should be reminded of our adoption. Every time we come and maybe use the Lord's Prayer, we should be reminded of our adoption into God's family. So the first thing we see is, of this word father is it's a spiritual privilege for the people of God. The second thing we see here is that there is an intimacy between us and God. There's an intimacy between us and God. Again, one, one commentator just said, Jesus thus draws his disciples into an intimacy with God akin to his own, similar to his own. This is absolutely amazing. Even that term Abba that he uses in the Garden of Gethsemane, that is a term of deepest intimacy. Lloyd-Jones just said it's a term list by a little child. I mean, it's amazing that we can approach God in this intimate way. Many of you will know uh, Arnold Dallimore, who was a pastor, faithful pastor in Canada. He's written various uh, Christian biographies. His most well-known biography is the one he wrote on George Whitfield, two volumes. And if you've ever dipped into these two volumes, you will find out very quickly that Arnold Dallimore had a great grasp of the history. I mean, I think he spent 30 years working on these two volumes, 20 on the first and 10 on the second. Now, he was a full-time pastor, so this was kind of in his spare time, but he spent 30 years writing these volumes. He has a great grasp of the history. And one of the advantages of reading this is he will tell you about Whitfield, but he will tell you about other people associated with Whitfield. So John and Charles Wesley and different people like that. But there's a guy that he mentions in there named Howell Harris that I found to be interesting. He will tell you these guys' conversion stories. And he mentions Howell Harris. Now, Howell Harris became a powerful preacher in his own right. He's one of the first people, maybe the first person to preach in the open air. He was preaching in Wales and he had a powerful influence on Whitfield. They became close, close friends, uh, Harris and uh, Whitfield. But Howell Harris did not grow up in a Christian home. And I don't think he even heard the gospel but until he was uh, late teens. So he was 17 years old. His father died when he was 17. And when his father died, his life began to just spiral out of control into all kinds of sin. Uh, Dallimore just said he lost that fatherly restraint in his life and his life just began to spiral into sin. Apparently he had a magnetic personality. He was bringing others into sin with him. And so this is his life. He's living this very sinful life, going down fast. And here's Dallimore. This is one of the reasons why Dallimore is so good because he will insert sentences like this. Here's the sentence. 
here's this life of sin. He says, from this life, this life of sin, however, Hal Harris was rescued by sovereign grace and was transformed into a man of God. That is a wonderful sentence. That will grab a hold of you when you're reading that. That, that moves you. It reminds you of your conversion and God's grace in your life. And it reminds you of God's amazing grace and Hal Harris's life. So Hal Harris, then all of a sudden, he, he sees, he hears the gospel. He sees the beauty of Jesus for the first time. His eyes open to the beauty of Jesus. He sees the cross of Christ. He sees the blood of Jesus shed for his sins. And he talks about the burden on his back, sort of like Christian and Pilgrim's Progress. The, this burden of his sins falls away from him. And he, and he had such joy that he literally leaped up and down on the, on the way home. He was so overjoyed at the thought that his sins, his many sins were forgiven. I mean, just overwhelmed. And he, he wanted to remember that day gratefully for the rest of his life. Well, he was, he was a brand new Christian. He hardly knew anything, but he knew he loved the Lord. He loved to spend time in communion with the Lord and he loved to read the word. And he would go off to this church building. I don't think anybody was there. And he would go and he would spend time as a brand new Christian, just communing with God. And uh, as a very new Christian, he was there, he was communing with God. And as he was praying to God, he said he all of a sudden he felt overwhelmed, like his heart was melting like wax before a fire within him. And he said there was a, there was a cry in his inmost soul that he was totally unacquainted with before. And that was the cry, Abba, Father. He said, I knew that I was his child and that he loved and heard me. So there is this intimacy when we, be, we become adopted children of God. We know we are his children and that he loves us and has, and has adopted us and forgiven us. Another pastor just said, God in his almightiness is looking at you with a holy love and knows your every need. He hears your every sigh and loves you with an everlasting love. So the first thing we see is there's a privilege, it's a spiritual privilege. The second thing is there's an intimacy with us and God when we are adopted into his family. And lastly, there is free access to the throne of grace for the children of God. One pastor mentioned a man named Charles Hodge. Charles Hodge uh, has written or wrote various commentaries on the Bible. At one point, he became a seminary professor at Princeton Theological Seminary, and he took his family there, and he was going to move into a home there in Princeton Theological Seminary. And they wanted Charles Hodge to look over the house and see if any changes need to be, needed to be made to the house. And his office was going to be in this house. His study was going to be in that house. So he looked over the house. Everything was great. There was just one change that he wanted them to make. And so he came to them and said, everything looks great. Just would like you to make one change. And here's the change that he wanted made. In his study, his, his doorknob to his study was very high. And so he said, if you guys could lower the doorknob down, because my youngest children will not be able to reach the doorknob. And I want all of my kids to have access to me anytime, day or night. And this pastor just said, uh, what a powerful illustration. God brings the knob low through the Holy Spirit so that we can access the Lord anytime, day or night. We can always, at any time, day or night, cry out to the creator, sustainer of the universe, the sovereign, triune, and almighty God, humbly and confidently praying, our Father. So we see it's a spiritual privilege to pray this way. When we pray this way, we should be reminded of our adoption. There's this intimacy between us and God, and there is uh, there's access. The doorknob is brought low through our adoption. We can go to the throne of grace anytime, day or night. So second point of emphasis is the two words, in heaven. In heaven. Let me just read verse 9 again. Pray then like this. Our Father, in heaven, hallowed be your name. So take these two words, in heaven. Why does Jesus include these two words, in heaven, in this prayer? Why does he throw them in here? Well, I think they're important words. I think Jesus wants us to remember who we are talking to when we're praying. The God to whom we pray must never be treated lightly. So he, Jesus includes these words in heaven to stress God's transcendence, to remind us that God is glorious, that he is almighty, he is sovereign, he is reigning, he is ruling, he is our father, yes, but he is our king. We can affectionately call him Abba, but we do it with a deep sense of wonder and reverence. So just this opening line, our father in heaven, this points to divine majesty as a complement to divine fatherhood. Yes, there is intimacy, but let believers remember that they are also addressing the Lord 
of heaven and earth. So God is he's majestic and, and he's merciful. So just this opening line, there's tenderness and power in the opening of the Lord's prayer. So we, we must approach God with awesome respect. It's these, these words, in heaven. One commentator put it like something like this. He said, it is always wise before we pray to spend time deliberately recalling who he is. He is our loving, powerful father. He's our loving, powerful father, and we should recall that maybe when we pray. But J.I. Packer gave these, these powerful two sentences. He said this. He said, the vitality or the strength of prayer lies largely in the vision of God that prompts it. So the strength of our prayer lies largely in the vision of God that prompts that prayer. Then he says, drab thoughts, or you could say dull thoughts, I even think maybe low thoughts of God, make prayer dull. I just this is very insightful. Drab thoughts, dull thoughts, maybe low thoughts of God make prayer dull. So if our prayer life is dull, we're struggling to pray, maybe we've forgotten to whom we are praying. And Kevin DeYoung Commenting on this, he said, if we're feeling at a dead end in our prayer life, he said, the answer is not to just sort of grit our teeth, to clench our fists and say, I'm going to do better. He said, that's probably not the answer. He said, he said, maybe we need to get a better, truer, bigger, sweeter understanding of God to, to bring, breathe life into to our prayers. And when he said that, it just made me think of, of Jerry Bridges. Jerry Bridges, uh, he was converted, I think, as a late teen. And he, he tells this story in one of his messages. Uh, I think he was probably in his 20s at this time, relatively new Christian. Somebody came to him and gave him a, a, a book by a Puritan author named Stephen Sharnock. Uh, Stephen Sharnock had written this book called The Existence and Attributes of God. It's a massive book. It was over a thousand pages. They gave it to him. And actually, Crossway, I think, just published a two-volume sort of updated edition very recently. But somebody gifted uh, Bridges this, this, this book, one volume, over a thousand pages on the existence and attributes of God. And he said he was very interested in seeing about the holiness of God. So he turned to the appendix, found where Sharnock had written on the holiness of God, and he had written a hundred pages. The Puritan had written a hundred pages on the holiness of God. So he turned to the holiness of God. He sat down in his chair. He opened this Sharnock book up to the holiness of God. He said he began to read about the holiness of God from this Puritan author. He said he read for five or six pages, and he said he had to put the book away. He said he had to get down on his face. He got down on his knees and had to pray because what he was reading was so overwhelming. The majesty, the holiness of God drove him to pray. And then he said he got up after several minutes of prayer. He got back up. He opened Sharnock up. He sat back down. He said he read two or three pages more, and he said he had to put the book down again. He said he had to go down to his knees again as he was driven to pray. He was being overcome by the holiness of God, and it was driving him to pray. So maybe our prayer lives are dull because we've lost sight of who we're praying to. And maybe we need a bigger, sweeter understanding of who God is, and that will breathe life into our prayers. So the opening of the prayer, there's fatherly love and there's heavenly power. Number three, we're going to come back to the first word, the word our. Point number three, the word our. Let me read this again. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This word our. This has been one of the ones that I think this has been the most striking for me is this word our. At least the one that's been maybe the most thought-provoking for me is this word our. How do we think about this word our? Well, it's a prayer in the plural for the plural. That's how we should think about this word our. It's a prayer in the plural for the plural. It is family speech. This phrase should remind us that we belong to the family of God. Jesus is reminding us that when we enter into a relationship with God, we enter into a relationship with his people. When we are saved by Christ, we are saved into his body, the church. And there's one guy, a Christian guy who wrote a book on the Lord's Prayer. He said, the first person singular, I, me, my mind, is completely absent from the Lord's Prayer. And I'm just going to read the Lord's Prayer and see if you can hear I, me, my, or mine, and pay attention for our and us. So let's read it again, starting verse 9 of Matthew 6. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You, there's no I, me, my, or mine. There's our and us. is all over this prayer. So evidently, prayer should not center on you or me, is what Jesus, I think, is getting at here. It shouldn't primarily center on us. And, and this author continues, one of our greatest problems and deficiencies in prayer is that we begin with our own concerns and our own petitions without regard for our brothers and sisters. Many of us falter in prayer because we begin with the wrong word, I, instead of our. Jesus reminds us that we are part of a family even when we pray. Thus, the first word of Jesus' model prayer is the word our. We are in this together. So Jesus teaches us to drop the I and start with our. Now, of course, it's not wrong to pray for our concerns, but I would just say this right here, practical application right here. Try this this week, even this afternoon, when you pray, try to say our, even copy the, this first bit of the prayer, our Father in heaven. Just try that. Hallowed be your name. But pray our and see it when you pray our, see if it will not change the trajectory of your prayer. See if it will remind you that we're part of the family of God and we should pray for other people. We should be drawn away from self-focus in our prayer. Again, coming back to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it says it like this. The preface of the Lord's Prayer teaches us to draw near to God with holy reverence and confidence as children to a father, able and ready to help us. So we've looked at that already. And then it says this, and that we should pray with and for others. So we should pray with and for others. Others, let's take the first one. We should pray with other believers. I think we all know this, but I think we should see this. As, it's, a, it's a joyful thing that we get to pray with other believers. It's something we should look forward to doing. We get to pray with other believers. Again, I'll, I'll mention Jerry Bridges' story. He was off on the mission field. This was early on, I, again, in his life. I think it was before he got married. He was on the mission field. He was dealing with, he said, discouragement one weekend, even depression one, one weekend. And just dark cloud over, over his life, just feeling very discouraged, very depressed, maybe because he was isolated, maybe he's alone, I don't know, but this was what he was feeling that weekend. And then it came Sunday uh, evening, he said all of a sudden the discouragement, the despair lifted from him and sort of the peace of God washed over him. Well, he didn't know this, but he found out several weeks later there was a group of his friends back at his home church gathered right when sort of this uh, depression lifted, they had gathered together to pray specifically for Jerry Bridges, and God answered their prayer and lifted it and brought this encouraging encouragement and peace to him. I mean, it's a joy to pray with other Christians. When our church first started, we had something called discussion group. Many of you will, will remember discussion group, and the idea behind discussion group was uh, any question— any topic, basically, as long as it related to the Christian life or the Bible, you, you think, well, how in the world? There's no structure at all in my mind. It's like, how? There's no structure. How's this, going to, how's this going to work? Well, some nights it worked better than others. Some nights it was just fantastic. You're just like, this thing, you just didn't want it to end. Other nights, though, the train, you felt like it jumped the tracks, and you didn't know where we were going. We were just like, is this train going to get back on the tracks? And sometimes I don't think it did. But here's what happened. Almost every time, without fail, it was the prayer time. The prayer time at the end was almost always. I can't remember a time when it wasn't sweet. There was something in the prayer, just praying with brothers and sisters in Christ, sensing the love that people had for one another and listening to them pray for each other. It is a joy to pray with other believers. Now, having said that, the, the, the most of our prayer, the primary, or the, the majority of our praying, I should say, will be done privately. We get to pray with other believers, but the majority of our praying is done privately. But even when we are praying privately, we must never lose sight of the fact that we are part of the family of God. We must pray with an eye toward and with love for Christ's church. So again, this prayer is calling us away from self-absorption. Even when we're praying privately, we, we should remember to pray for other brothers and sisters in Christ. So one, one, another uh, different author, according this time, he wrote a book on the Lord's Prayer as well. And he said, praying for a brother or sister in Christ is one sign of spiritual 
maturity. I thought that is so good. Praying for a brother or sister in Christ is a sign that we're growing in Christ's likeness. It's a sign of spiritual maturity. And he gave this very helpful illustration. And if you have young kids currently, you will relate with this illustration, I think. But he said, imagine a family who has two young kids. They have a three-year-old boy and a 10-month-old girl. And the three-year-old boy is a very demanding young boy. And literally every month, he has literally hundreds of requests that he makes to his parents. And you, you can imagine the sort of request. We have a three-year-old who's going to be four, Lord willing, in January. And this is the kind of thing he is doing with us all the time. You're trying to constantly teach him to say please. But, I mean, you average day is waking up. Dad, you know, help me, help me pick out my, my shirt for today. Help me with my shoes. Mom, can I have some cereal? Mom, can I have some more milk? Mom, are we going to go to the park? Dad, can you read a book to me? I mean, just all the time, all day long. And that's the, this guy in this story. Every day, all day, he's having these requests for himself, literally hundreds of times every month. And then all of a sudden, one day, sort of out of the blue, he comes running to his father and he says, dad, dad, sister has fallen down. She's hurt her knee. She's crying in my room. Will you please come and care for her? Well, this boy's father will be touched. He will be moved by his son's concern for another family member. This author said, in the same way, our father in heaven wants us to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So as we think about this word, our, it's a prayer in the plural, for the plural. We get to pray with others. And, of course, most of our praying is done privately, but even when we're praying privately, we want to pray for brothers and sisters in Christ. So number four, let's get to the foundational petition itself. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. I think the first thing to say about this is that it is a petition. This is a request it's not a declaration. This is not a, an expression of praise. No, this is, this is a petition. It's a supplication. We are imploring God to do something, that he would see to it that his own name is hallowed. Well, what, what does that mean exactly? Well, we pray that God's name, which embodies his essence and character, will be treated or regarded as holy, that his name would be regarded as holy. We can expand that out and say something like this, that his name would be treasured and honored and adored that his name would be loved and valued and esteemed. I think that's getting at the idea of what this foundational petition is saying, that God's name would be revered and honored and adored. Now, it's a global prayer. It is a global prayer. We just talked about praying for others. We, we want to pray this for our families. We want to pray this for our church family. We want to pray this for the world, that God's name would be adored and honored and esteemed. But I do think this prayer does start here. It starts with us. And one pastor just said that when he wakes up in the morning, many mornings, he said he's not hallowing the name of God. He said he's thinking about his problems, he's distracted by all kinds of things, and so he will come and he will pray something like this. Our Father in heaven, I come to you with all my weaknesses and limitations and distractions. But Father, I come and ask that you would help me to love and value and adore your name. And he just said, isn't this encouraging that Jesus would tell us, ask the Father to help you hallow him. What a wonderful thing to pray. Sinclair Ferguson said, we are praying that God would be glorified in all things. We are really saying about our own lives, Lord, may everything I do and say show forth your glory as my Father in heaven. And may all my thoughts be focused on what will bring honor to your name. Going back to this book that I've referenced already, he gives this wonderful illustration in, in this book. He, it's a made-up story, but just picture that there's a wise king. This is several hundred years ago. This wise and benevolent, kind king, and all of his subjects love this king. And every week, every Thursday, he opens up his throne room where anybody can come to his throne room any, every Thursday, and they can bring whatever petitions they have. They can bring whatever cares they have. They can bring it to him every Thursday. And so every Thursday, this king opens up his throne room, and people line up to see him. 
And every Thursday, there is one man who comes and he stands in the back of the room and he stands sort of at attention. He stands with reverence for the king. But this man never approaches the throne of the king. And so the king is just waiting and seeing him, but he's dealing with all these petitions. And week after week, this guy comes in and stands there every, every week. The same man is there. And this king is starting to wonder what is going on with this guy. So he asked one of the guards. He said, now, guard, if you see this man come in next Thursday, I want you to ask him to come and see me. I just, I want to know more about him. And so sure enough, the next Thursday, the throne room was opened up. This guy, of course, is there. He's standing at the back. So the guard approached him and told him, told him to come and see the king. And the king said, now, sir, I, I see that you come and you come every week. And I'm thankful you come and you stand there with, with reverence and attention. But uh, could you tell me more about yourself? And the man said, well, king, you may not remember me, but many years ago, I committed some horrible crimes and I was captured and I was tried and I was found guilty of those, tr- those crimes. And I was sentenced to be hanged in the gallows. And so the day came that I was going to be hanged and they, they, they bound me up and they, they led me through the streets and I could see the gallows ahead. And all of a sudden you were coming in your royal chariot. I, I saw you in your chariot and you were coming. And so I thought this is my last chance. This is my last chance for hope and for life. And so I cried out to you, King, have mercy on me. King, have mercy upon me. And people tried to quiet me down, but I would not be quiet. And I yelled out all the louder, King, have mercy on me. And somehow you, you heard and you stopped your chariot and you got down, you stopped the procession and you listened to me and you heard my pleas for mercy and you set me free. You granted me a royal pardon. You set this man free and you let me go. You have given me life and freedom. I come to pay you homage, to honor you as your devoted servant. Now, I love that illustration, but of course, if you are a Christian here today, there was a time when you were not on your way to the gallows, you were on your way to everlasting destruction and God had mercy upon you. He saved you and set you free. And we come to the throne room of our gracious King and the foundational petition that we bring is, hallowed be your name. The greatest desire of all should be that this wonderful God who has become our Father in and through Christ should be honored, should be worshipped, should be magnified amongst the people. Hallowed be your name. Just real quick, some practical things. How can we hallow God's name in our lives? I'll just give you a few pretty quickly. How do we hallow God's name in our life? Number one, this may be obvious, that we are careful not to profane God's name with our mouths. Number one, we are careful not to profane God's name with our mouths. R.C. Sproul, in his sermon on the Lord's Prayer, he, he just said that before his conversion, he said he used to take the Lord's name in vain regularly uh, with his speech. You know, Jesus' name was a common curse word for R.C. Sproul. He's converted as a freshman in college uh, powerfully, at night, one night, but after his conversion, he said one of the very first changes he saw in his life was with his speech. He said he could no longer blaspheme the name of Jesus with his speech. Why not? Because I now had a profound affection for Christ. He had a deep love for Jesus. How could I use his name in vain? I had love the Lord Jesus. And then secondly, another way that we hallow God's name is we're gonna, I think we're going to have a sensitivity to hearing God's name used in vain. And, and Sproul said that's exactly what happened with him. His friends were using the Lord's name in vain, and he had this deep sensitivity to others who took God's name in vain. I saw someone wrote this week, I can't wait for eternity to never hear the name of God profaned again. And I think that's Christian talk. So number one, we're careful not to profane God's name with our mouths. Number two, we're going to have a sensitivity to hearing others uh, taking the Lord's name in vain. Number three, we're going to speak of him with great reverence. We're going to speak of him with great reverence. And I remember when, as a new Christian, I would listen to, to uh, Adrian Rogers. I, wouldn't, I would almost always disagree with something he said in his sermons, but Adrian Rogers had a deep love uh, for the Lord Jesus. And when he would speak of Jesus, he spoke of him with great reverence. I mean, it would just move me that when he, he would talk about Jesus, you knew 
Adrian Rogers loved Jesus and talked of him with great reverence, and that's how we should be as well. Number four, we will reverence him as father with acts of public and private worship. We reverence him as father with acts of public and private worship. We'll love to sing praises. We'll just love to, to worship him uh, with our lives. And number five, we hallow his name by living a life that displays that he is our father. Lastly, I'm borrowing this from another pastor. Lastly, I would just say this. If you're, you're not a Christian and, and you're here, we're, we're so thankful you're here and you're listening to this and you may be thinking or maybe you're watching online and you're thinking, you know what, I, I have not hallowed God's name uh, with my life or with my words. Uh, is there any hope for me? Is there any hope for me? Well, I think there is hope for you, and I want to give a couple different things. It may take me a second. Let me, let me read a powerful quote from, from R.C. Sproul. This may not seem like hopeful at first, but I'll get there. Sproul says this, His name, God's name, is holy because he is holy. He is not always treated with holy reverence. His name is tramped through the dirt of this world. It functions as a curse word, a platform for the obscene. That the world has little respect for God is vividly seen by the way the world regards his name. No honor, no reverence, no awe before him. So that may not seem like good news, but if you're not a Christian and you're thinking, uh, I haven't hallowed God's name, the first thing I would say is consider the patience of God. I mean, that quote has moved me to tears before because it reminds me of the patience of God with a world that does not honor and reverence his name. So think of the patience of God in your life. Number two, this may take a second, but number two, there, there's, uh, there was a man who was almost 100 years ago. It was uh, 1930 in Wales, and he was very poor, and this man was 77 years of age. He had spent a lifetime in drunkenness, uh, fighting, debauchery, hopelessness, filthy language. The man was so unpleasant to be around that nobody, nobody wanted to be around this guy. I mean, non-Christians, Christians, people just were so uh, turned off by this, this man who had lived a horribly sinful life. I mentioned him in Sunday school a, a few weeks ago, and certainly here, here was a man who had not hallowed God's name with his life. 77 years old, wasted his life, basically, he was constantly getting drunk, even getting drunk on the job. And he would, this begins where he was, he was in a bar, and he was drinking himself into drunkenness, and he overheard some people talking about some pastor in town, this, this new guy who's in town. And this pastor apparently said that there's hope for everyone. That's what the pastor said. And this one sentence would change this man's life. He said, if there's hope for everyone, maybe there's hope for even you know, a drunk like me. And so he decided he would go and visit this church. It took him three times to get there. Finally, somebody asked him to come in. On the third, the third week that he went, he finally, somebody said, uh, hey, Bill, why don't you come in? And he came in. He sat down in the pews there. And when he sat down, the service began, and a young man, a young preacher, got up to preach, and the man's name was Martin Lloyd-Jones. And this man began to preach. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, if you've uh, heard him preach or you've read his sermons, he's going to go down and he's going to go up. He's going to go up with wonderful gospel truth. But this man, who lived 77 years of, of life of sin, he, he found that he could understand what Lloyd-Jones was saying. He, he could follow Lloyd-Jones' argument. And Lloyd-Jones, I'm sure, uh, preached the gospel that day. I don't know exactly what he said, but you know, maybe it was First Timothy, you know, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And, and he just talked about Christ, the, the Son of God, coming to die for sinners, that all those who turn from sin and rest in the finished work of Jesus can be forgiven and have new life. And this man who'd, who'd wasted his entire life, he's sitting there listening to the gospel probably for the very first time, and he was washed, he was sanctified, he was justified right there in that service. And he had, this, he had a glow even about him, they said. He would die three years later, and he died with the face of an angel. Absolutely incredible. So here's what I would say. Number one, if you're not a Christian, think of the patience of God. Number two, consider the offer of the gospel, the free offer of the gospel. This amazing good news. Our son, who's almost four, he, he's, he's been a, a kind of obsessed with... 
I knew this was dangerous to go here. He was, he's, he's been obsessed with, sort of, with the cross and, and the nails and wanting to know, wanting us to read again and again. And the other, the other night we were looking at Kevin DeYoung's wonderful book that has over 100 stories, very well illustrated by a guy named Don Clark. And there's a picture with a crown of thorns and blood coming down. And I suddenly said something, is he angry? He said, no. And as I thought about it, I said, no, he's not angry. He's filled with love. He's filled with love for sinners. Christ died for sinners. There's such good news there. So consider the offer of the gospel. So what a wonderful opening to this Lord's Prayer. I hope we will begin to put into practice some of the principles that he has taught us so plainly in verse 9. Now as we think about communion, I'm going to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read from verses 23 to 28 as we get ready for communion. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 28. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So if you're not a Christian, as I just addressed, uh, you, we would ask you to abstain from coming forward because you don't need uh, these. You need what they signify. You need to close with the Lord Jesus. You can turn from sin and rest in the finished work of Jesus. So we'd ask you to abstain. Now, if you're a Christian and you're not living in unrepentant sin and you're not at odds with another Christian, we'd ask you to, after I pray and after you examine yourself, we'd ask you to come forth and partake uh, of the elements and then return to your seat. And I would just say, uh, when you take communion, don't let your mind go into neutral. No, I, I would say, think actively about the person and work of Jesus. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, what an incredible privilege it is to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Uh, what an incredible privilege. Help us never to treat that lightly, the fact that we can approach you, we can approach the, the, the king of the universe, and we can say, Our Father. We can say, Abba, Father. What a privilege. And there is an amazing intimacy now that we have as your adopted children, that you love us, you care for us, you, you see our every sigh, you know our every tear. So help us to see the privilege that it is to pray in this way. But help us never to approach you lightly. Help us to approach you always with deep reverence. And Father, I pray that your name really would be hallowed in us, that we would treasure and honor and revere your name in our lives. And uh, Father, I pray that our church would, would hallow your name. And I do pray that when we pray, that we would remember that we are a part of a family, we're part of the church, and that we would pray for other believers. Now, Father, as, as we come to partake in communion, what a privilege it is that we are commanded to, to remember uh, the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. And so I pray that we would partake joyfully today, remembering uh, the person and work of Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.